Welcome to Tool Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss realistic practices and relevant resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. My name is Travis Montgomery. I am the host of this podcast. I've been really blessed to do this for the past year and a half or so. I've had some really interesting conversations with some really intelligent people, um, and I've come up with some good alliterations along the way I'd like to think, although maybe at points they've repeated themselves from episode to episode. Um, I do apologize for our ardent listeners who have to endure that. Today we're going to talk about something that I've been diving into just a little bit here lately. Um, That is the subject of lexicography. Uh, Many of you may know, some of you may not, that lexicography is the making of dictionaries, which seems, one, incredibly boring. Um, Not everyone will think that. Some of you listeners are probably scoffing right now, but many of you probably recognize that this seems like a very technical subject, um, and technical maybe with a negative connotation here. But you might also realize that this seems pretty straightforward. Um, If you're an average exegete, you rely on a lexicon to tell you uh, what a word means or what its possible meanings are. And so it seems like you find the word, you go find out what it means, and you put it in your dictionary, and you're done. Now, that's a little bit reductionistic, but probably most of us don't have as clear a picture of the process involved as we would like or as we would need to. So whatever category you're in, I hope that this proves beneficial to you as an exegete of Scripture, as someone who's going to have to inevitably rely on the work of lexicographers. There are a variety of methodological factors to keep in mind when considering various lexicons. Uh, There's one way to say it, lexicon, and there's another lexicon. It's just more fun to say lexicon, so that's what I'm going to say today. But what we need to stress here today is that lexicology dramatically influences lexicography. Lexicology being um, very similar to just broadly semantics, linguistics, um, syntax. We're thinking about the especially word meaning in context when we think about lexicology. Uh, I have a great episode stressing the importance of lexicology with a guy named Todd Price, um, a PhD in corpus linguistics. Uh, It's fascinating. I would definitely encourage you to check out what he's doing in Bible translation and go back and listen to that episode. Now, we're going to focus in, as we talk about lexicography today, on one particular and very important work. Some of you may have had to read along the way in your studies. Others of you have just read for fun because you're that kind of person. And many more of you have probably not heard of or dealt with. That is A History of New Testament Lexicography by a guy named John A.L. Lee. As one can learn from the back matter of the book, Lee spent three decades teaching classical and Koine Greek at the University of Sydney, Australia, and he has spent the last two decades at Macquarie University, uh, again in Australia, where he continues to work with a guy named H.G.R. Horsley on a lexicon of his own, more or less, uh, called A Greek-English Lexicon of the New Testament with Documentary Parallels. That title becomes more important as you read through Lee's historical survey. We'll talk about that in a moment. Lee had previously been known for his work on the Greek translation of the Pentateuch in several incisive articles in lexical semantics and biblical Greek. All this to say that Lee is more than capable to contribute to this series. This uh, Studies in Biblical Greek from Peter Lang Publishers, uh, this is no joke. This is edited by D.A. Carson, includes volumes from such respected authors as Stanley Porter, Constantine Campbell, John Salehammer, and more. Um, this is uh, an important series, helpful series. I would encourage you to go check it out, especially Lee's volume here. 
He doesn't undertake a historical investigation for its own sake, but rather seeks to identify the methodological factors underlying the entire history of lexicons of biblical Greek. Okay, you should you should recognize all of a sudden this is not a small thing. This is the entire history of lexicons, up to and including Laonida and Bidek, the two most prominent Greek-English lexicons today. Lee also seeks to make some suggestions for future lexicographers in order to overcome what he sees as truly stifling barriers to the task of lexicography. Uh, this is a thesis-driven work is what I'm trying to get at. So it's not just history for history's sake. He's trying to show how, by examining in close detail the entire history of New Testament lexicography, um, how lexicology has, and just frankly market factors, um, have uh, in some ways tainted uh, the history of lexicons. We'll get more into that in a moment. The book's presented in two major sections. If you were to pick it up, you'd notice that the first half is uh, mostly a survey of the history of NT lexicography, and then the second half is several case studies, so very specific words, um, uh, just getting into how different lexicons have handled them, whether they've included all the relevant data, how they've decided to classify, and how they've decided to indicate the meaning. Um, it's very, very helpful, very, very insightful. Today, I just really want to focus on the big picture of the historical survey, so that first half, and then Lee's suggestions for future lexicons. This is all building toward what he would see as the ideal lexicon. I think it's worth considering for us today, especially if you are a nerdy language major of some kind, um, an exegete who finds yourself thrilled at the idea of lexicology and lexicography and semantics and syntax and collocation and colligation and so on and so forth then you might want to be a part of this. You might want to have something to do with this undertaking. The logical flow of Lee's work can be stated in three propositions. So this is not Lee's exact wording. This is my summary of him. Uh, but I think it's, it's true to what he's written here, and I think it's helpful for us to consider. Three propositions. One, Lee presupposes that anti-lexicography is foundational to the process of biblical and theological studies. Two, Yet Lee presents the historical practice of anti-lexicography as deeply flawed by faulty methodology, and, and therefore, finally, third proposition, Lee proposes a future for anti-lexicography in light of the digital revolution. Um, as, a, as a good preacher, I had to alliterate a little bit, and I did have three points, but I really do think these are the three main propositions that drive Lee's historical survey. Now, he doesn't outline these in exact terms, but you can find each of these themes in just Lee's preface. So Lee presupposes that NT lexicography is foundational to the process of biblical and theological studies when he writes in the preface, uh, Roman numer numeral 11, lexicons play a pivotal role in all other subjects, yet they are commonly taken for granted and trusted as though they had no faults. Though Lee does not develop this point in any detail in the book, the point's well taken. There can be no profitable exegesis, biblical theology, systematic theology, or preaching of the New Testament without some understanding of what the New Testament's words mean. That seems just completely self-evident to us, right? So, Lee expresses an appreciation of and an affinity for lexicography and lexicographers. Lee writes that he has become quite fond of them. Again, Roman numeral 11 there in the preface. However, this does not mean that he has whitewashed their history. I have not spared the lexicographers, Lee writes. Uh, and this is, if you read the book, you'll find out a bit of an understatement. Lee presents the historical practice of New Testament lexicography as 
deeply flawed by faulty methodology. That's that second proposition. The opening paragraph of the preface sets the stage and summarizes Lee's findings. I just want to read a, a few sentences here just so you get the point. This book had its genesis, this is Lee, this book had its genesis in the realization that New Testament lexicography is not what it seems. After five centuries of accumulation and refinement, the content of the major lexicons of our day might be expected to be highly reliable. It is not. Scrutiny revealed one instance after another of dubious method and material. Lee writes, my 1997 article on Hexus studied one example in depth and set out the themes. Dependence on predecessors? a poor method of indicating meaning, subservience to translations, and unreliable control of data. A history of the tradition was the way to explore these further. The overriding goal is to trace how well the lexicons have succeeded in their primary task of indicating lexical meaning and to suggest how progress can be achieved. End quote. How well have the lexicons succeeded in their task? Lee's short answer is not that well. Lee somehow, I, I really believe this, avoids an overcritical or condescending tone, which is no small task, considering he concludes that every single lexicon in existence, that's right, is insufficient. Even though Lee has not spared the lexicographers, as he wrote, he is quick to affirm his appreciation for, these are his words, their immense labors in a difficult discipline. However, Lee's looking to the future. The four flaws of New Testament lexicography Lee mentions here in the preface are expounded throughout his historical survey, as we will see in just a moment, and naturally lead to Lee's suggestions for progress. This is that third proposition. Lee proposes a future for New Testament lexicography in light of the digital revolution. Though the details are saved for the end of Lee's first section, a hint of this thinking is embedded again in Lee's preface. Hedging his own historical work, Lee admits that he was not able to satisfy his, quote, desire for completeness, quote, in the list of NT lexicons, but encourages readers to offer corrections or additions via email. He's writing in 2003, strongly foreshadowing his forthcoming suggestions for lexicographers. Lee is something of a lexicographical millenarian, which is a term that I, I would encourage you to appropriate in any setting in which it is applicable. Lee believes the parousia of the personal computer is sure to usher in a golden age of New Testament lexicography that removes or at least significantly overcomes the limits which had bound every previous lexicographer. All right, in light of this overview, in building on Lee's presupposition that NT lexicography is foundational to the process of biblical and theological studies, we turn our more detailed attention to Lee's historical survey. I want to not necessarily get into all the details um, all the list of names, although I would encourage you to go find a copy of this and, and pick it up for no other reason than his just list, his short summary of the history of New Testament lexicons. Um, but what we're going to see is these four flaws that he laid out in the preface. Dependence on predecessors, a poor method of indicating meaning, subservience to translations, and unreliable control of data show their heads, rear their ugly heads throughout um, this entire historical survey. They're restated, actually, toward the end of the book's first section with slightly different wording on page 177. It's, it's one, an undue reliance on predecessors. Two, an unsatisfactory method of indicating meaning. Three, interference from translations. And four, inadequate means of gathering evidence and opinion. Uh, we're going to take each of these in turn and offer a synthesis of the historical material related to each. Firstly, an undue reliance on predecessors. Lexicography is hard work, okay? 
In an illuminating test case in Chapter 1, Lee explains the process of creating a lexicon entry for just one word in Koine Greek, anagkadzo, which is only found nine times in the New Testament. Were one to search for every extant usage of the word, one would find about 8,000. Lee writes, quote, Ideally, all of these examples should be looked at. Instead, the best we can do is make some spot checks and get an impression as quickly as possible of this word's usage around the time of the New Testament. At least a day has gone by. At this rate, that is if all the words are as easy as Anakazo, and we can do one every day, the whole task will take 13.7 years, end quote. That's on page 5. Lee goes on to explain that the majority of the words in the New Testament are not nearly so simple as Anakazo, and a lexicon compiled in this way would likely take a lifetime to complete. If this is so, how have there been so many lexicons in the New Testament produced in the last 500 years? The whole history of New Testament lexicography, writes Lee, is one of reliance on predecessors and transmission of older material with varying degrees of revision. End quote. Instead of beginning afresh, a previous work is expanded upon, subtracted from, or rearranged in some way and labeled as a new edition. As a major work goes through the revision cycle, it often drops the initial editor's name altogether to be marked as a completely new product that owners of previous editions ought to buy. Lee is matter-of-fact on this point. He writes, There is no point in being indignant at such practices. Businessmen do what they have to do to make a profit. Without them, there would be no lexicons available to anyone. And editors and revisers of lexicons do what they have to do, given the constraints of time and human frailty to get the work finished. These factors have to be accepted. This does not stop us, however, from recognizing the true character of our current lexicons and considering what might be done to improve them, end quote. It's on page 11. Though a full recap of Lee's historical survey is just not going to fit in this podcast episode and probably would only interest a handful of you, it's important to note that BDAG and Launida, the two most important Greek-English lexicons today, are implicated in his critique. BDAG, this is a quote, is the end result of a century of work in the Preussian Bauer series, Lee writes. And he explains that um, beginning with the work of Preussian and then, and then Bauer and then those revisions, this is a, this is a whole hundred years worth of work. Uh, he writes, quote, all of it has been revision, never a completely fresh start, end quote. That's on page 170. Launida is with BDAG, his words anchored in the existing tradition even though he'll acknowledge that they have some unique merits, which we'll get to in a moment. The other three of Lee's four flaws make sense of his concerns about the continuity of Koine lexicography. This is the second one, an unsatisfactory method of indicating meaning. So what has so tainted this existing tradition that Lee seeks a fresh start? For one thing, the way in which the vast majority of lexicons have attempted to indicate meaning is based on a faulty methodology. The primary task of lexicography though not quite dead on arrival, is at least limping through the door. Lee has titled his second chapter, The Reign of the Gloss. Uh, he's, he's really good at these, these kind of dramatic turns of phrase, as you would think someone who studies words would be. Lexicography in general is often done monolingually, in which case a gloss is simply a synonym, right? Go to any English dictionary in English, and what do you get? You get an English word, and you get some kind of English indication of meaning. Um, if it's a gloss, then that's just a synonym. That's all it is. In bilingual lexicography, then a gloss is a word of generally equivalent meaning. But here's the problem, and if you've, you've studied this in any depth, maybe you've read James Barr, The Semantics of Biblical Language, you recognize two languages rarely, if ever, have two respective words with an identical semantic range. While 
the word in one sense might mean something similar to the other language's word. There may be other senses within the range of meaning of that word, within its semantic range, that don't apply. And so you could potentially lead the lexicon user astray by importing a sense which could not possibly have been meant by the author because it was not a sense present in the lang- or the word in their language. This is explained a little bit on chapter uh, in that chapter on page 19. Lee seeks to rally Koine lexicographers to revolt against the reign of the gloss and defend the kingdom of definitions. A definition, writes Lee, is a clear and succinct statement of the area of meaning covered by the word or by one of its senses, including any fuzziness. Imprecision is capable of precise definition. Clarity, namely the avoidance of ambiguity, is essential, end quote. That's on page 21. After observing word usage in context, the lexicographer ought to note the distinct senses of a word and rightly divide its semantic range into precise and clear statements of definition. What a definition does then, if we're thinking about semantic range, we're thinking about uh, senses of meaning, is that it places the gloss, in this case the English gloss, in a context with other words that helps to delimit its range. So, for instance, uh, the English word trunk, this was, uh, ended up getting used so much in a, in, a, in a recent discussion about this that I was able to have with some fellow students. Um, the word trunk in English, this is a, just a common um, illustration of this, could mean the trunk of a tree, could mean the trunk of an elephant, or could mean a trunk of a car, or could mean uh, a trunk like a tote that you, you store things in, right? And the only way you're going to know is if it is put in context. That's basic semantics 101. The vast majority of us have read or studied something about this. If you haven't, uh, definitely go check this out. Semantics of Biblical Language by James Barr is one very, very helpful book in this regard. So if you just give a gloss, you take a Greek word, and I don't know the Greek word for trunk off the top of my head in any of its senses, but if you take that Greek word and you then just put the gloss in trunk, then you leave the reader to try to figure out which tr- semantic sense of trunk you mean. Or uh, potentially you lead them to think it has the exact same range as the other. So this is this is the problem that we come to in, in glosses. Now, it's not normally the case that there's going to be one with that much um, of an issue, with that wide of a semantic range. But you can recognize that if we're trying to accurately handle, rightly divide the word of truth, God's word in in the scriptures, then we absolutely want to have as much clarity as we can. That's exactly what Lee is getting at. In chapter 10, titled The Breakthrough, Lee identifies Launida as a paradigm-shifting contribution to the history of NT lexicography. So Launida is most famous for arranging entries not by alphabetical or root order, Um, which is actually pretty common through the history of NT lexicography, but instead by semantic domains. Um, What is the English concept or category that we would put that word in? But that's not what Lee's impressed by. The breakthrough to which he refers is instead that this was, these are his words, the first New Testament lexicon in 500 years to apply the definition method in a thoroughgoing way. Lee immediately casts Launida as having shortcomings, but emphasizes that, quote, the definitional method is right and the work is the first step on the path leading New Testament lexicography onto new and more secure ground, page 155. End quote. Perhaps Launida's greatest contribution, at least in Lee's eyes, is that it led to a use of the definition in BDAC, 
So back when it was bag D, it was completely glosses, and those glosses had largely been inherited from um, the entire history, really, 500-year history of lexicons, which would just provide a, a Latin gloss to um, a Greek word. And more or less, um, Preussian and then Bauer just kind of kept those same glosses, translating them first into German, and then Donker came along and translated them into English. But after Laonida, out comes BDAG at the turn of the millennium. And wouldn't you know it, there's definitions and not just glosses. But that's only in about three-fifths of the entries. Okay, so Lee tips his hat toward BDAG as an appreciable, his words, appreciable step towards his ideal lexicon. Glosses provide little more than flashcard meaning, which has limitations that are obvious to any user of Google Translate. As Lee writes, quote, such a method not only indicates meaning, but also in the case of bilingual lexicography offers a translation, end quote. Uh, The interplay between gloss and translation will be expounded further as we look at his third flaw of lexicography, and that is interference from translations. One would expect translations to rely heavily on the possible glosses provided by lexicons. I mean, that's just how it works. The lexicographers help us to uh, understand what the words mean, and the translators take those options and figure out which is the best one in context and, and, and plug it in. That makes sense. That's what they're there to do. However, as Lee demonstrates in Chapter 3 of his work, lexicons have often relied on the glosses provided by translations, even when they are no longer or never were helpful. Far from being evidence of a word's meaning, that is, uh, instances of synchronic usage, translations are firmly in the category of opinion. Lee affirms that these opinions can be better or worse and are worth considering his words, yet he warns that they, quote, have been trusted as if they were authorities, end quote. The stream of anti-lexicography has uncritically incorporated circular reasoning by means of the gloss, which really ought to be the particular product of a translator after the long process of definitional lexicography and diligent linguistic work. Just because NIV, ESV, NASB, whomever, have found that in a particular instance, a particular Greek word could be translated with a particular English word, does not mean that we need to shove that particular English word into a lexicon that would potentially lead us to think that that translation applies to any or all instances of the Greek word. Okay, this is this is backwards. This is circular reasoning. And then finally, the, the fourth of Lee's four flaws is an inadequate means of gathering evidence and opinion. Uh, this is made most explicit in Chapter 8 called Control of the Data. We saw in the preface that Lee believes that anti-lexicography has demonstrated an unreliable control of the data, those are his words there, rather than the exhaustive checking, another phrase of his, of the phenomena that a linguistics-informed approach to lexicography would require. This data Lee has divided into two categories that we just talked about, categories of evidence, that is instances of usage, usage and of opinion. That are, uh, quote, definitions of meaning in previous lexicon statements in commentaries and word studies and translations, end quote. Evidence has become increasingly available with each new discovery of the archaeological enterprise, while opinion continues to accumulate with or without new discoveries. The difficulty of gathering this data has been compounded by an unreliable control of which data is included. This is mostly the result of the aforementioned uncritical reliance of lexicons on their predecessors. Lee writes, 
Even today, the major lexicons depend on a collection of evidence that is the end result of this flawed process. So Lee makes clear that this is not merely about the quantity of data presented in any particular lexicographical entry. It's not just that BDAG ought to include more references for you to go search. Rather, he insists, this is a bit of a long quote, the pointed issue is the reliability of the coverage, not the quantity of matter recorded. Have all possible sources of opinion been checked, and has everything of value been extracted after due evaluation and brought to bear on the word before its treatment on the lexicon? In the present state of affairs, it is seldom possible to answer confidently in the affirmative. The inherent difficulty of control under past conditions makes it so, end quote. It's on page 128. Again, Lee is quick to note that the problem does not rest entirely on the shoulders of the lexicographers, whom he has decidedly not spared, but also considerably on their circumstances. There had simply not been a way to gather and filter all this data in an expedient way until the advent of the personal computer. This insistence paves the way for Lee's proposal for future lexicography. Okay, those were Lee's four flaws, and now here are Lee's ideal lexicographical attributes. He proposes a future for NT lexicography in light of the digital revolution in chapter 11 titled The Way Ahead. Lee's history has, and I'm convinced by it, attempted to show that a thorough lexicon has heretofore been too difficult to produce, and thus lexicographers have relied too uncritically on their predecessors. Lee's argument is that the existence of the internet and the personal computer significantly overcome these difficulties and provide lexicographers with the necessary tools to avoid the faulty methodology of the past. Lee describes his direction for the future in that chapter with the following headings. One, an electronic database. Two, an ongoing cumulative task. Three, a cooperative effort. Four, the statement of meaning. Five, the collection of data. Six, widening the circle. And seven, product. Uh, If you really read through these sections, uh, you can pretty simply um, identify what he's getting at, and you can clarify them. I've come up with five adjectives that would comprise what we're calling Lee's ideal lexicographical attributes. One, definitional. Two, comprehensive. Three, open source. Four, digital. And five, generative. We're going to walk through each of those. The first of Lee's ideal lexicographical attributes is that it would be definitional. So even though he begins his proposal by talking about a digital database, the logical priority is in the statement of meaning. Above all, Lee's driven by a lexicological demand for a definitional statement of meaning. This is why the semantic domain element of Launida is far less consequential, though certainly intriguing to Lee, than the fact that it employs a definitional statement of meaning. He writes, The start that has been made in Launida, BDAG, and elsewhere needs to be followed by sustained effort to produce good definitions for all the vocabulary of the New Testament. Lee's convinced that a proper lexicon must be definitional, and the next three of his ideal lexicographical attributes are logical entailments of this desire. So, Here's the second one, comprehensive. Lee's not content with a gloss expanded into a definition. In order to come to accurate definitions for the senses of a given word, Lee seeks inductive study of all the available evidence, the phenomena, and assessment of all the available opinion, that is scholarship. This is a desire for comprehensiveness, what Lee calls exhaustive collecting on 185, or in other places, exhaustive checking. He does not mean to insinuate that nothing good or accurate has ever come from the history of NT lexicography. Uh, Instead, he writes, of course, whatever is good in the tradition will be kept, but not before it has been re-examined. So Lee believes that a proper lexicon is definitional, 
and accurate definitions are preceded by comprehensive gathering and assessment of the data. And so if we're going to do that, we're going to overcome the, the difficulties of the past, we have to turn to this third lexicographical attribute. It must be open source. He doesn't use that word, um, and there's there's a good pushback on that word. Um, a fellow student of mine, Doug Barnwell, mentioned um, this is not worth not thinking about Wikipedia where anyone can just log in and make a change and it's not vetted. Um, but it's still a helpful term. We'll see why. Lee describes his ideal lexicographical work as an ongoing cumulative task in a cooperative effort. He desires to, quote, keep up with new data and developments as they arise and also to outrun comma, or quote, the pace of obsolescence. Uh, This is difficult enough in the standard practice of lexicography, but it's even more difficult in light of the relatively small number of contributors to any given work. Lee writes that scholars' way of working is generally against cooperative efforts, and lexicography has tended to be a more solitary pursuit than most. Uh, So Lee's getting at, no one scholar can keep up with this. It's an ongoing thing as we find more archaeological evidence as people study words in their context um, in journal articles or commentaries or what have you. Uh, you just can't you just can't keep up with that and a singular mind really can't often craft an accurate definition. So it's not just the um, the searching out and the assessing of the data. it's also getting to the point of trying to actually actually convey that in another language. Two minds are better than one, he would say, and you know, 10 or 20 or 100 minds are probably better than two. So if the goal is definition through comprehensiveness, then we must have some kind of open source lexicon, understanding that term kind of loosely. And so if it's going to really be that, it has to be this fourth attribute it has to be digital. Even without least historiography, it ought to be obvious that an open source lexicon is hardly a possibility in the world of print resources. Thus, Lee's ideal lexicon must be primarily digital. Lee writes, a collection of data in electronic form is the obvious requirement and is, I think, inevitable. So not only does this make the large body of work imagined elastic, it also allows one to filter the relevant data as needed, doing away with the cyclical problem of lexicons expanding and then retracting. He, he does a really good job of showing this in the history section that new editions will sort of revise, but mostly just kind of add a few more uh, instances for people to go look at, add a few more senses that they ought to consider until finally it becomes too bulky. And the next logical step is for the publisher to say, let's do a slim down version. And it eventually just kind of cycles back to what it originally was in some ways. So Lee discusses the product in question separately from its being an electronic database, but these two categories really just go together. Having set forth five centuries of history, Lee is quick to hedge his own proposal, wisely recognizing that a CD-ROM might be a laughable proposal in just a few years from his writing. Regardless, Lee's right to view the digital revolution as a lasting and significant change in the way research is conducted and resources are offered. This is Lee's starting point, but it's really just a logical conclusion of the first three of his attributes, the means to his employ to employ his desired method. Lastly, Lee speaks of widening the circle and applying the accumulative accumulated data of his ideal lexicon in a variety of ways. This is the attribute that I'm I'm calling generative. This is where Lee seems to convey his curiosity of Laonida's semantic domains. He more or less describes much of what present readers can ascertain through Bible software. Um, This is a bit of a longer quote. 
The database in mind here would be just the vehicle for gathering and presenting lexical structuring data and everything else of relevance to determining meaning. This could, in no particular order, cover syntagmatics, connotation, registered, context of situation, stylistics. All this could be provided by means of links from any given word to other areas of the database. Okay, so this, this goes back to it being digital. But what he's imagining is that if you had a way to collect and sustain and maintain and vet and assess all of the data, all of the instances of a word, and all of other people's opinions about that word, then you could inevitably answer questions that are of more linguistic nature. Um, collocation. What, what words does it does it pair up with? And when it does pair up with them, does it carry a different semantic um, force? Could we, could we eliminate in a particular instance? Could we say, Hey, if it's found with this word, you got to go with definition number three. That's the only option. Or, you know, at least you can't go with definition number one. That's no longer an option. Can we delimit the semantic range through data like collocation, colligation? Though not technically an attribute of Lee's ideal lexicon per se, he imagines its use as a source book for other questions of linguistics and exegesis beyond that of any existing Greek lexicon. Those are Lee's ideal lexicographical attributes, definitional, comprehensive, open source, digital, and generative. Lee presupposes that NT lexicography is foundational to the process of biblical and theological studies. Yet, Lee presents the historical practice of NT lexicography as deeply flawed by faulty methodology, particularly in undue reliance on predecessors, an unsatisfactory of method of indicating meaning that is the gloss, interference from translations, and inadequate means of gathering evidence and opinion, especially limited by print and a lack of collaboration. Therefore, Lee proposes a future for anti-lexicography in light of the digital revolution, describing an ideal resource that is definitional, comprehensive, open source, digital, and generative of other works. I don't know about you, but I immediately start thinking of Bible software. And yeah, Bible software can do a lot of this. If we have morphologically tagged papyri even, um, or we have a wide database um, of the phenomena, if we can get um, as many instances from the first century, especially of Koine Greek usage as possible, and we can tag each of those, then I can get a really good idea of how any particular word is used um, in that mood, in that person with these other surrounding words, in this kind of a context. And I can hopefully recognize the various senses and hopefully I can connect with others to try to discern and, and pull up a, a wide variety of commentaries, journal articles, etc. at just one click that give me an idea of what others' opinions have been. In a lot of ways, Bible software is doing exactly what Lee hopes, but it's not as aimed exactly as sharply as he would maybe put it. It's not exactly doing just lexicography. And so maybe there could be something within our Bible software. I don't know what Lee would have to say about this. I tried to find some um, follow-up from him, and, and I, I was unable to, but I'm sure there's some good stuff out there. I would really appreciate it if people would comment on or email me, Travis at exegeticaltools.com, um, with anything Lee's maybe said to kind of follow up. I hope to connect with him um, in the coming months. But just to see, does he view Bible software as the fulfillment of what he's been looking for, or at least a good start? Or does he think that a more purposeful effort needs to be um, made? I don't know. 
As for Lee's own lexicographical endeavor with Horsley, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament with documentary parallels, which is, by the way, a revision of Moulton and Milligan, the long plot of the lexicographer continues. It's not yet complete. Perhaps both Bible software and Lee's own lexicon are best understood in light of Lee's conclusion to chapter 11. This is what he has to say. All this may seem to be an unattainable ideal. There's no reason why it must be, given sufficient time and application. Development along these lines seems to me inevitable in any case, though it will be slow and require many interim stages. At this juncture, it seems important to be aware of what has gone wrong in the past and how it might be fixed, rather than to continue in trustful ignorance and perpetuate the same mistakes. And just by way of conclusion, if you are not a lexicographer, and this is not um, just inherently interesting to you, but you're now starting to wonder, how do I really do right by the text if there are some of these inherent issues in the lexicons I use? I would just encourage you, seek to really understand what the lexicon entries are saying. Um, Seek to really discern whether a given entry could even apply in the context that you're looking at. Um, This is where like linguistics in general and discourse analysis especially can be so helpful because we have to start with some sense of what the words mean, right? We have to even start with flashcard meaning or glosses in some sense, but we have to hold those loosely. And as we understand the, the broader context, we might realize, okay, yeah, there are five entries here in BDAG, but given the context, it just it just can't be this fifth one. Or um, I'm going to go look up the various instances listed on the fifth one, and I'm going to notice that there, all of those have this other word present, and that word's not present in my passage. General linguistics, discourse analysis are going to be so helpful. There's just no shortcut in translation. There's no shortcut in interpretation. There are good tools, but they have to be a launch pad to help us understand what's going on in any given instance of a word in its context. There are others who have uh, written and spoken far more clearly and helpfully than I have on that, but let me just sound the bell one more time and point you back to their works and encourage you to do your very best um, to be a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who accurately handles or rightly divides the word of truth. Mm-hmm.